0: Welcome to ESPN's The Far Post podcast. It's not the result we wanted, which feels like a very large understatement, but it is true. Unfortunately, the Matildas have been bundled out of the Asian Cup after a one 0 defeat to South Korea. It was a Jisoo Yun wonder strike. Cannot you know take any credit away from what an absolutely stunning goal it was in the 87th minute. Unfortunately, the Matildas just did not have any answers to that, and we have crashed out into what is our worst ever Asian Cup result, so there's a lot to unpack, there's a lot to discuss, so we will talk about all of it now. To take you through this podcast is me, Marissa Lordanik, Angela Christian-Wilkes, Sam Lewis and Anna Harrington. So we've we've slept on it, we've made sure that we've filed, we've slept, we're kind of fed, we're ready to talk about this properly. So how do we assess this game as a game, but also in terms of what it means for kind of the Matildas as a whole, Anna?
1: It's a catastrophic failure, isn't it? I think everyone involved with the Matildas, everyone watching from the outside, football fans, interested observers. Um, I don't think anyone could think it was anything but an abject failure. Um, And that's partly because of the exit quarterfinals um, at a tournament where we've been at a minimum finalists, as long as you can remember, won at once, finalists the past two campaigns and just crashed out in the quarterfinals. It's the manner of the exit, you know, red hot for 20 minutes, couldn't put any chances away and then ultimately failed to break down South Korea and didn't have an answer for the equaliser. And it's, yeah, of course, as you say, when you you look at the bigger picture, but to I guess to assess it straight up, It's not met the very high or not even high, just fair expectations that they set on themselves, Tony Gustafsson and the players and everyone associated set on this team at this tournament. The message consistently um, for at the very least the past few weeks, if not months has been, we want to win it. Uh, We want to lift silverware. This is our first opportunity since the Olympics to try and do so coming off that fourth place finish at the Olympics. We want to make a mark heading into a home World Cup. We want to win the Asian Cup, um, and that was consistent message from the coach, from the players, and they've not only not met it, they've not got close. They're not even—they've not made the final. They've not even made the semi-final. Bit of quick maths for everyone there: made the quarterfinals, lost in the quarterfinals. <laughs> but yeah, it's and it, it is just—it's just bad, isn't it? Like, and I think it's the main thing to come from the wash-up has it has led to and i think justifiably in some points question marks over what this means for tony and what it means for the players um there have been you know uh, there have been calls for you know is this the end for tony or is it at the very least going to prompt a serious sort of review into what can be done better and what has to be done better because it doesn't just exist in a vacuum like um, we know we've been talking about this the whole way in terms of, I guess, the whole the whole journey with Tony Gustafson, which is, as he said from the start, they want to win a home World Cup or win the World Cup on home soil. They want to be um, in that upper echelon of women's football. And we know that there has been this journey of playing against top opposition and, um, you know, trying to test this team. But, you know, was it six wins from 20? And you can understand why people are frustrated and I think the other level of frustration that has come is um around what progress we've seen um or what level of progress there has been because we know that there was the the very good result at the Olympics but at you know at the time it was a fantastic result and it still is fourth place but at an Olympics but when you look at the whole picture you go well, is it an anomaly now? And that's unfortunately where the where the discussion is going to come to because we've come into a tournament where the Matildas were favourites or one of the favourites and they've crashed out. And I know that we can look at it and say, oh, yeah, it's a difficult structure and how did we end up playing South Korea in the quarterfinals because it's one of those weird tournaments where you've got three groups and things end up everywhere. At the end of the day, if you want to compete for Silverway, you've, you've got to beat these teams and to not do it, um, in terms of looking at that game individually and to once again in a big game have a situation where chances weren't converted early and then be unable to break down a disciplined defence, you can understand how it's led to how it's led to frustration. But, yeah, I mean, we're going to go into it a bit deeper, but on the surface, looking at the game and looking at the tournament and looking at where we're at, you can't describe it. As anything but a failure, and I think the messaging that's come out almost immediately would,
2: would sort of reflect that too. Yeah, pretty devastating, I guess. Um, there was that sort of after G scored that incredible goal. I don't know if it's if it's just that you pick up off the vibes from like the players and how they're going, but it it really did sort of feel like a moment of we're out. You know what I mean? Like there was still five minutes of play. But I think that feeling potentially comes as well from, you know, being a Matildas fan and not being used to them being able to overcome these sort of moments. Um, and it's been so Sam discusses this in her piece for ABC, which will tell us. But it's an interesting... We cr- yeah, we crumble. So it wasn't like entirely surprising. I think that's the thing. It was like after we conceded, it was like, well, okay, that's it. We're out, I guess. Cool. <laughs> not cool. Obviously, not cool. Um, and yeah, I think, from, not to get pithnal, but I think for me, the sort of sadness around this loss is that I, I think we came into the tournament, I thought that Tony Gustafsson would be the coach to have the mentality. And the mindset and to instill that in the players to be able to overcome these big moments. And it's only really this game where we've had this happen to the middle thus far in the tournament. But it it just wasn't it just wasn't there. And it's yeah, I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about sort of um the never say diameter of the Matildas in this sort of context as well. It's, it's funny because I'm sometimes like, but we have to adopt that underdog persona because we're not dominant and we're not finishing these games. the I mean, we should, and we, we're not putting like we saw in this game, we're not putting away the chances early on and making the most of some really fantastic play that we saw in that first half, some really beautiful possession and fluid, um, forward play and creation yeah so I don't know but at the same time like obviously just it is a failure but I also no I don't sometimes it's not good to be like Got to stay positive or whatever. But I do think that there have been some things from this tournament that we've learned and there's some things that we've taken out of it that we can take moving forward. If we'd won the game, we still would have been able to take those things. It's not just it's not like um I don't know how to what I'm trying to say that. But basically yeah. So I think there are things that um there are some real positives that have come out of the 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 cup. It's just this is a overwhelmingly massive negative finish that you can't really ignore and you can't excuse. Um and I don't know if defend is the right word, but you, you can't you can't defend, but you can dig deep into why it happened though. And I think that's really important as well. And I'm um, for the most part, I think a lot of folks have been doing that. Um and sit, like looking at the reasons why. Some some takes I don't think I agree with, but you know that's the way it is. That's football.
1: <laughs> I, I've actually I don't want to say enjoyed it because you don't want
2: to you don't want to see
1: a result like this, obviously, and that has prompted the discussion. But I think it's been really good to see the the level of interest in trying to dig deep into what the issues are and where it comes down to the coach, where it comes down to the players. Um and um, I've seen, you know, a couple of friends of the pod, Ante Yukic, Joey Lynch, talk about it. We've seen um, on Channel 10, you know, Andy Harper, Georgie Yeomendale, to mention a couple. Obviously, Sam has, has done her piece, and there's just been so much discussion and analysis and breakdown, which I think is really good and really important, and it shows the level of care that one people have in this team and the expectations people have, and also the amount of work and investment that's being put into news organisations to actually dig deep into this. It's just a little aside. I think it's been fantastic to see that level of discussion. And we touched on that after the um, the Indonesia game where there was a lot of talk about substitutions and young players, et cetera. And um, I, I have, yeah, I, I think it's been fascinating to see the level of um, discussion around it. But yeah, Andrew, I like the what you said there about you can't defend it because the problem is they have, and I think it was Andy Harper who said as much, backed themselves into a corner in the sense that it was a very strong squad, like effectively bar say Katrina Gorey who opted out of this squad. And um, we know that we talk about Elise Kellen knight but at this point, unfortunately in her career, she's going to be a luxury you'd think if she can make it back rather than uh, embedded part of this squad, Chloe Lagarde. So there's a few names that aren't there, but in terms of the players that could be there, strongest possible squad, plus a couple of really exciting additions, um, strongest possible squad based on the selections we've seen over the past year. Some will contend whether this player or that player should have been there or shouldn't been there. But based on what we've seen, this is the strongest possible squad. They set out the intention. And um, from what Tony said, it was pretty clear that this was something that the FA wanted as well, was to win this tournament. So anything less than at least making the final was going to be a, a failure. And as I said, going out in the in the quarterfinal is, is effectively a catastrophic failing. And Failing? Failure is effectively a catastrophic failure. And, yeah, as, as I said before, it's, it's going to, I think, pretty justifiably lead to scrutiny over whether is Tony Gustafson the man for the job, is um, what are the options? Like, are you going to make uh, – is the FA going to back in their man long term? And I would say if they are going to make a decision either way, that's going to have to come relatively soon because the Home World Cup is, a, well, less than 18 months away or 18 months away. Um, so I, and I think they've been some pretty fair and, yeah, really detailed
2: discussions on on this part. Sorry, Angela, you were about to jump in. I think you bring up the World Cup and I think it's that's such a big component of this story that we're all on with the Matildas at the moment in the sense that... I, we want to win a Home World Cup, right? But there's that niggle in the back of the brain where you're just like, was this ever going to be, like, if we hadn't have gotten the bid, would we be going into 2023 with the same expectations? Probably not. And I think it, it's created a like this very pressurised, high expectations environment around the players, which... Granted, it is their job as professional athletes to be able to work through that. And it's the job of the organizations around them to provide them with the resources and the tools to be able to do so and to basically meet that pressure and be able to make it into results. But at the same time, sometimes I'm just like, what if we'd never gotten that damn World Cup? What would, what would, but that at the same time, it's the World Cup has brought so much attention already. Um, to the Matildas and to the women's game. And these discussions also provide a really good opportunity to look at all the different components that go into creating a national team, which is like basically you're looking at the entire structure of football in Australia, including all the different things in coaches, pathways, grassroots, whatever. So it's a big thing to sort of consume. And I think that sometimes gets a little bit lost when we look at the coach because they're obviously the, the, the figurehead, I suppose. They've got a lot of accountability in the situations. Um, but there's so much, it like takes a village, right? And there's so much at work, um, which, yeah, I don't know if we'll get into, like there's so many different th- things you can point to, um, but there's also no definitive way of being like, this is why we got knocked out in the quarterfinal because the A-League women isn't a full home and away yet, for example, even though I looked into this and Korea's league, WK league, they get to play 21 games and a lot of their players come from that competition. Just bigger picture looking at our squad coming into this cup, there were a lot of players who haven't been getting a lot of minutes and I wonder if that played a thing in sort of the on-the-ground on the tangible outcome to this this stuff. Almost certainly, again, can't say for sure. There's so many different things. You can only sort of debate and then make decisions with the information that you have at your hands. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, what's the word? Notty one. It's a naughty problem.
1: It's interesting, Angela, that you mentioned the Home World Cup because if we weren't hosting the World Cup right now, we'd be on the precipice of not even qualifying for said world cup <laughs> like, <I just laughs> that, that, like if you want to really you know put into context how bad that is <laughs> like that tournament performance is it, it's that if we and i know it's, it's a bit of what ifs like oh if that goal doesn't get chalked off what happened but like when you look at the straight facts if if we weren't the hosts you'd be in serious you know to do playoffs etc etc like it would it would be real bad. And I'm not saying that it's not bad, but, like, that's just how damning, I guess, this this performance is. And, Rissa, um, reading your piece for ESPN, plug, um, I, I found that the last line really stuck with me where you said, there's just a one nil loss and a home World Cup. Australia have never felt further from winning. And I think that's the vibe that has really or the feeling that has really stuck with a lot of people post this result was, geez, <laughs> if if we didn't think we were off, off the pace before, that result has really entrenched it. Because it is, unfortunately, another big game where we talk about it, chances haven't been taken and then been made to pay for it. And this has happened under different coaches in different tournaments. And Sam, I know you will touch on this as well. We've seen several occasions where this team... Has been able, I'm sorry, has been unable to take its chances early, and then has not been able to, I guess, recover from that. Whether they panic, whether they're not able to find the solutions, and it ends um, all too unfortunately in getting knocked out or losing a final or losing a, a big game. And it's, um, yeah, it's, and this is unfortunately the the latest and and perhaps most costly. Um, because of because of what it means and because of yeah I think that I think we will talk more about the the pressure on on Tony Gustafson but it will also I guess the scrutiny on these players because a lot of them have been part of a part of these teams and it will I think evoke questions on which players have the metal to do these to perform in these moments is it a structural thing is it the cattle, is it the coach? I think that's probably an element of both of who's stepping up and when and best using these players and whether it's um and I think Anta Jukic had a good point on whether it's can you fit all your best players in one team versus uh sorry, is fitting all your best players in one team better than you know, finding the right structure and system that works. And so far the evidence says no right? That's a very simplified version of Ante's opinion there. And I think it is going to be a question like, what is this team's best structure? How can they best be used? How can we get the best out of them? Because clearly right now that's not happening. Like um, this team is currently not performing greater than the sum of its
3: parts. And the thing for me, and I've sort of stayed quite quiet at the start of this episode, because I've been really interested in hearing both of your thoughts and um, the thing for me now and what I've addressed in my piece for ABC is trying to understand why this feels so different to what it has in the past, because when we look at the Matildas in the longer context of their tournament performances, they, this is not really an anomaly, they have always struggled against more competitive, better organised teams, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in North America. And yet it, it seems to have come to a point now in this moment where it feels worse. It feels like something is broken. And I've been trying to think about why that is and what it is and I sort of arrived at the fact that it's, you know, it's it's not that the Matildas have fallen down the ladder over the past couple of years. Uh, In fact, over the past 10 years, they have averaged pretty consistent results in major tournaments against more competitive teams. And I couldn't help but notice the the eerie similarity, I suppose, to the way the Matildas lost the 2018 Asian Cup final against Japan. It was an 85th minute goal and we dominated the opening half and we didn't take chances. And that happened under a different coach. So you have to wonder, looking at everything, all the, not just the year that's led up to this, but everything before that, the players that have been developed according to a certain system or style or curriculum, the support that they have or haven't received at various times and various levels of football, and how all of that is coalescing into this moment and into the way that we talk about this moment, because it it's, it feels like lots of people are angry, and they're firing off shots every which way, and they want to hit something because this has been something that has annoyed us for such a long time and we haven't had answers. We don't know what the problem is and so we're just rapid firing at everybody and everything and hoping that something sticks. But as you said, Angela, this is a whole of game problem and we need to think about it not just in the context of the Matilda's own history, but the context of the current global situation of the women's game. We're seeing nations accelerating away from us. And it's not that, I mean, maybe we have stagnated. And in a, in a context where everyone is getting faster, standing still is as good as going backwards. And that's what it feels like is happening. And this tournament, which it should also be mentioned, has been expanded from the last editions that we made it through, is featuring teams who are getting better. And this result, the performances that we've had, I think that that it's really encapsulated a lot of the longer processes and decisions that have swirled around and created this, what feels like, as Marissa mentioned, this insurmountable gap between what we think this team should do and what they have shown that they can do because at the moment that feels wider than ever and I think that's the reason why so many people are so upset. I think
2: it's an interesting um, sort of malaise to be grappling with because so a um, friend of the pod, Amy Ruskite, wrote an article interviewing Cho so who plays for... Korea and she articulated some very similar feelings about what's going on in Korea in terms of women's football and development there and I think it is we're at a point where it's like you have to keep up like and in sort of the the broader history of women's football as well we've seen countries be these superpowers like China is a really great example of this who've done the right things early on but haven't progressed and have sort of lost that status a little bit like that isn't to um disrespect China they're still a very competitive side but they're not necessarily the they don't strike the same kind of fear that they would have done in the 90s for example Um, not that I was alive three-year-old me being like wow you gotta watch out for those steel roses (laughs) gotta keep an eye on them anyway but um And I think as well, thinking about the World Cup and the development, like obviously there are um, some, there's work at the moment to try and remedy a lot of these issues. Um, One of the interesting things that I've seen in discussions is talking about bringing in new players, bringing in talent. And I'm sort of like, but haven't we, we've been doing that. It's just that that started happening after we won a World Cup bid and that, started happening once there was the infrastructure and the support to be running like talent ID camps and then there's obviously so much underneath that like the World Cup we're creating a legacy and I'm sort of like is the legacy the thing that would actually help us win the World Cup like do we actually need to have been doing all of this so much earlier to even think about realistically winning a World Cup on home soil. And that isn't to be like, no, we shouldn't have a legacy. We should just give up. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just like, it's the past is in the past and we have to look to the future. But it is an interesting thing to think about. Um, on a Yeah, I just... In terms of the legacy as well, in the community space, you've seen a lot of, um, this is just like an example, a lot of clubs being like, we want to make the most of the World Cup. This is going to create a spike in interest in women's football. Whether that's actually a reality or a myth that we sort of just attach to World Cups because we haven't actually seen sustainable participation in World Cup host countries, to the best of my knowledge, post-World Cups. Um, that's a different thing, but it is really interesting, I suppose, that that's what's happening. Like, we are like, yes, we want to add to our women's program. Now, this is the time to add to our women's program um, because there'll be interest in the game. But then it's also like, but having more people at grassroots is going to be beneficial for everyone and that will bolster things moving upwards. I just, it's, it's a bit of a chicken rake.
3: But um, it's a really good point you make, though, Angela. And I like, I was nodding furiously in agreement with, with your point that the legacy that we're building towards is actually what we should have already done because that is what produces the kinds of players who can win World Cups. And the best example is the USA. They're the only nation who has hosted and won a World Cup on home soil that led to a very obvious uptick in participation in investment in structures. And now, what a decade on, 2015, 2019, back-to-back World Cup winners again after they won it in '99. That you know, that's a that's the model, that's the blueprint for how you do this stuff. And I would like to think to be optimistic about this moment, that after the World Cup, we are not going to put all of our eggs in the basket of how far the Matildas go because they mean so much more than just what they do on the field. And I think that's another thing that has been difficult to grapple with for some people. And as part of this larger discourse, you know, there's been a lot of, well, football's a results-based business and you need to be judged based on your results. Like, yeah, but it's also something else. It's something else, and this team is something else to so many more people. That doesn't discount that they're also results driven, and that doesn't discount the position that you can judge a team or a player based on results. But it also means that we need to think about this team and how we talk about moments of crisis like this in a more holistic fashion, and that when we make predictions about whether we can win major tournaments. We need to think about the fact that the Matildas have become now something that has transcended results. And we need, we need to take care of that as well. You know, we can, we can address what's happening on the field. We can talk about structures and tactics and whether we're fielding the best players, but we need to also keep in mind that that's not the only version of the Matildas that exists and we all, I think, need to be a little bit more gentle and more mindful that there are other ways in which this team is making an impact and is doing good things in the world. And sometimes that balance is really thrown off, particularly when it comes to situations like the Asian Cup.
1: Yes, Emma, I do like that you've mentioned the US there because I think consistent theme throughout tony's tenure and even his appointment is his work with the us right like um part of this behemoth that is just ruthless um, in the big moments um i think i said in the last pod maybe that they're uh, you can almost feel at times like they're like a bit jammy because they can just pull these results that almost feel like they've come out their ass like i think of that um matilda's game that friendly against them a few years ago where I think Chloe Legarze scored the goal and then like late on just you see Lindsay Horan just drift in and, and score, right? Um, that's what they're able to do. And bar the game against Great Britain, which was a chaos game, let's be honest, We have that's not what we haven't seen from this Matildas group under Tony. That's what we haven't seen. We haven't seen the finished product it, it, and we touched on it before. It feels like... Um, it's something that's popped or reared its head and you you mentioned it in your piece as well Sam. it's reared its head under different coaches in different tournaments uh, not being able to pop up at the right time but this is why they opted for Tony Gustafsson Sam you were on his opening press conference with me where that was what he talked about game management you know scoring goals at the right times in games not dropping off not having these little patches not You know, building that consistency and always being a threat, and he talked a bit about obviously ball movement and those sorts of of things. But game management was a really big thing, and you have to query whether it has improved because we've seen it yet again, as we mentioned, that coming out like a house on fire, just stretching South Korea and absolutely blitzing them in that first twenty minutes, and looking like they've scored three, four goals, and obviously none, none went in, and it was one of those days where um Sam Gurr had about three chances she'd normally and she'd normally bury two of them right and none of them went in we saw Mary Fowler who's a young player um have a couple of chances you'd normally see her put away that didn't work and it was interesting because we pre-Olympics when I spoke to Tony he talked about Mary Fowler and Kyra Cooney Cross as players that they just wanted to see sparkle so whether they started or came on they were just enabled there wasn't the weight of responsibility I guess on them they were just sort of given a license to do what they could do best and you know come up with moments and fellas you looked tired and I was interested that it surprised me that she wasn't substituted in that second half but she looked like she was carrying the weight as well which isn't something we've we've seen so much but yeah it it's i guess just to come back to the the what i was saying before one thing about the us is you can pretty much always bank on them to to pull something out to make something happen or if they're dominating as a general rule to capitalize on their dominance and we just haven't seen that converted here i mean three of those six wins we touched on came in the group stage and yeah we've the first test that's come in the asian cup like real you know or die test unfortunately they've they failed so it's um yeah it's yeah it's it's just difficult and now heading I think the big thing that has to come from this is the discussion around what happens next um because clearly regardless of what they decide to to do with Tony and if they if they back him in or if they decide to make a change we'll see. You'd think that they will probably back in, back him in through to the World Cup, but I don't know for sure. But you have to wonder what will be the changes. Um, I've seen a few different discussions on this. Um, Melissa Barbieri obviously captained Australia to the Asian Cup in 2010. She spoke to my colleague at AAP, Ed Jackson, about this, about maybe wanting to see more sort of battle-hardened players come through. Like I think we were surprised that players like Angie Beard weren't cited or that say, I'm not saying say Emma Checker should have been in this final squad, but we're not seeing players who've got a lot of caps under their belt compared to, sorry, who've got a lot of WA league women games under their belt coming in. We've seen a lot of, a lot of kids tested out, which is going to be sort of long-term, but you wonder, are we going to see more of this? I think there's a big question mark over, um, will we see Tony spend more time in Australia? Because you could sense that has been an underlying frustration for coaches. In the a-league women and for players whether that be through like little twitter likes here or there or or outright commentary like um in in post-match press conferences or interviews about the senior coach of the matildas not being based here and seeing these players you'd have to think it will spark some sort of internal conversation about whether we need to see that what does the head coach need to be here in australia looking at these players for the rest of the season i i think it is a valid point um and also, I guess, just around how this team is going to look going forward. Do you try and integrate more players or do you, as Barbieri so just go stop experimenting and it's time to settle and see it happen? It's, it prompts a really interesting discussion because I don't think we've seen the best of the Matildas a lot in this sort of year and a bit. That, as I mentioned, that first sort of 20 minutes, sensational. But we haven't seen enough of it against good opposition, Sam.
3: What does the best of the Matildas look like? That's my question. When we look back through history, what did what is the best performance that we can think of? What is, what is, the, what is the utopian ideal of the Matildas? This is actually an open question. I I can pinpoint maybe the 2017 Tournament of Nations as a a moment where the Matildas seemed to just click and they did it against good teams in a tournament setting. It was a friendly series, granted, but it was still a tournament setting. I haven't seen that on either side of that tournament before. And so when I look at that, I wonder, are people comparing now to then? And is that comparison fair? I don't know. This is an open question to to the pod. I just got
2: this isn't really a great answer for or serious answer to your question, Sam, but it is interesting in the sense that like they were playing good football around that time. There was all this energy and excitement around the Matildas and maybe it's just like an approach of just like have a good time, gals. Don't worry about the results. Just Sunday football. Obviously don't do that. My other suggestion is Ritalin at halftime, but I'm not sure if that's legal. Anyway.
1: As you say, Sam, it's the 2017 Tournament of Nations. (laughs) Thanks, Angela. Um, And also the Cup of Nations, um, the first games under Ante Milicic, that South Korea game where it just got put to the sword. Um, But as you say, not too many of these are coming in um, in big tournaments, like you obviously have the memorable moments, like the the win over Brazil. You have the miracle of Montpellier, and you know you have all these games that are the win over Great Britain. But there's all games that you know are big moments. But in terms of, I guess, consistently seeing like the thing that fascinated me with um, what Barbieri said to to Ed was about not being able to pin down their style, and we know we've seen changes in formation we've seen changes in personnel um the deployment of emily van egmond is a consistent talking point and a less i guess sort of flashy discussion is how Tamika make a has been used throughout this time as well um, it's yeah it i don't know i think the the general feeling seems to be we just haven't seen things kick up to that next level that we'd like and we know that there's been a period for of experimentation but it just it just doesn't feel like we've maybe seen the progression we wanted to. And I don't know if that's partly, and you mentioned earlier about this sort of hollow feeling after this game because we've had this whole period, and I think Ash Sykes touched on it as well um, for Optus. I've done a lot of listening today. Um, Ash Sykes for Optus kind of touched on it that we've not had this great sort of run of results, and then it's gone from we're developing, we're testing out players, and we're going to win the Asian Cup. And it seems like there is a real discrepancy between those two things because there's not been too many complete performances in those friendlies so far. I had the great win over, over Brazil, obviously, which is a standout, and both those games were, were great to watch. But in terms of the players that we've seen tested out and then going from that to we're going full guns blazing to win the Asian Cup and then haven't lived up to that, it's it's posed a really, yeah, it's not been satisfying. And I guess the the big frustration, and not to – harp on about it is it feels like and it's happened again that after playing so well I don't know if it's a loss of confidence because you go oh we've been throwing everything at it and then the damn wall hasn't broken and it's ended up going back to long balls to Sam Kerr with three players on it and like this is <laughs> you know and the one that really guilt edge chance that Sam Kerr missed was off the back of Courtney Vine getting you know in behind and sliding a ball across and using Kerr's movement um And, you know, with good with strong defensive teams, you are going to see them try and find a way to isolate Kerr. And I think there was a frustration that Caitlin Ford seems to be a player maybe a bit low on confidence and certainly low on club match minutes and maybe form, um, partially her own form, partially injuries, partially not being able to get in ahead of uh, sort of rampaging Beth Mead at Arsenal. It just isn't clicking. And you know that when you get to a point where long balls to to Sam Kerr. And it's very reminiscent of sort of, you know, soccer was a few years back where it was, let's route one it to Tim Cahill. And that's just not, (laughs) that's never where you want to end up. It just seems frustrating. I guess that we're just seeing this repeat again, where we know that that's very rarely going to be the answer to go. Occasionally you're going to see like against the Philippines where Steph Catley puts in just a wonderful cross and Sam Kerr pulls off a brilliant header between three players But that's not going to be the reality. And I guess that was what was so frustrating for so many people was you felt like with this team's maturity and the players getting to a certain point and you've brought in the coach that is also meant to sort of get this, you know, bring this out of these players, that we would have seen that patience. And we did see it against the Philippines in that group game. There was the patience, there was the let's stick with it, we're doing all the the feeling of we're doing the right things and we're going to Break, break it and get through, but as soon as it came to a knockout game, they've not been able to break down the disciplined defence and that's I guess that's where the frustration really lies.
2: I think that also, yeah, comes back to the, the point of like working with a good team versus good players. I don't think, I don't know where the long balls come from. Like I feel like no coach has ever been like, just panic, just whatever. You know what I mean? So, but then it's like, how do you solve that issue? But it's it's interesting as well, looking at bringing players in. Do you, in order to, again, it's another sort of chicken or egg. I suppose you have to look at what sort of players you're working with at the higher levels um, of the talent pool. But then if you want to set and work with a particular system, you have to find the right players to then put into that system. And also long-term, I'd, this is a genuine question, like obviously we have the, the national curriculum in Australia, but then at the Matildas level is that style of football set by someone like Tony and then um, you have to run with it long term because you've developed particular players to meet that system because I feel like we don't necessarily have the depth to just be like, okay, we want to try something new, so I'm just going to pluck this kind of defender out of the A-League women and pop them in and it's all going to be fine and we'll be able to just see if that works. Does that make sense? I just I feel like, it, again, we're working with a situation where the limited sort of resources and um, at a point in the game where it's still just growing in a lot of ways, which isn't again? It's not an excuse because other countries have figured this out um, before now. But it is, I guess, something to
3: to consider as well. On the topic of long balls and why they happen, I feel like maybe the tournament of nations is another good example because when we think about Sam Kerr and the kind of football she has played up until probably the last 18 months to two years, it has been pretty characteristic of the Australian style, transitional, physical, getting in behind defenders. And as she has risen through the ranks and become a clinical finisher, we saw at that Tournament of Nations how many goals she scored by doing exactly that. We saw her win back-to-back golden boots in the W League, in the NWSL, playing that sort of style because she became dependable using that style. She became a goal scorer using that style. And so given how long some of these core players have been together at the national team level for the Matildas, it doesn't really surprise me that one of their plan Bs is to bomb it long to Sammy because that's what they used to do and it worked. But the problem now is trying to break that habit because it does happen when they panic. We saw it in the quarterfinal when they can't think of other ways to go about things or they don't trust or have the personnel to be able to execute plan A. They revert to the plan that has worked in the past and they hope that it works this time. And it in, I mean, if Sam had put one or two of those goals away, maybe we could say, yeah, like that that still works and she's still able to do that thing. And she had two or three chances, even in the first half, I think, where she ran off the shoulder of a defender in a very Sam Kerr-esque transitional kind of speedy moment. Um, you know, everyone remembers the hat-trick she scored against Japan at the 2017 Tournament of Nations, right? All, all three of them came in exactly the same manner. So... Like, yeah, over, like, I'm trying to think of it also from the perspective of, of Tony because people are like, well, you over rely on Sam Kerr. I'm like, yeah, but she's a good goal scorer. She's been scoring lots of goals in lots of different ways. Why wouldn't you want to rely on her? And it just so happened that in a game against South Korea where she had three probably extremely scorable chances, it just didn't go in the net. And now we're focusing on this. We're focusing. We're, talk, we're having this big discussion. But had those three chances gone in, I wonder whether we would still be talking about this in this way.
1: I like to think we would because we have a critical view, Sam. <laughs>
3: yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, of course, of course. course, I'm joking.
1: I'm joking. But when we've looked our best has been when we're not relying purely on Sam. Yes, I she's agree. always going to grab the headlines. You're always. Going to talk about oh jeez Sam Kerr how good was she look at the things she did but like we've looked at what, good one we've seen Emily Van Egmond chip in with goals from um from midfield we saw um in the friendlies obviously the Claire Polkinghorn strike striker sensation that seems like a long time ago that's not what uh, the source of goals that you want to have obviously but you see it when you see Haley Razzo chipping in I, I feel like she must have been carrying something to not be. Um, used a whole lot I mentioned Caitlin Ford seems down on form and confidence which which doesn't help the situation but yeah clearly need more more routes to go and that's the um, that's the killer it, one one thing I am going to be interested just to go hark back to something we were talking about earlier in terms of selection and players being brought in is something that fascinated, I think, all of us when we saw the squad selection. And we mentioned players like Angie Beard, who's an easy example here, because we've seen some players, it feels like the message had been go to Europe or go overseas and test yourself. And we've seen some players really benefit from that. Claire Wheeler, standout example, has gone, had a standout season in the A-League women, went to Denmark, continued it on, and then has been able to make an impact at Matilda's level. And we've obviously seen... Um, the likes of Sam Kerr and Caitlin Ford, etc., Steph Catley have been playing overseas for quite some time now. But it seems like there is a, a bit of a maybe a dichotomy there because we're seeing players that were, have been plucked into Matilda's camps off the back of maybe having a New South Wales NPLW season cancelled um, because, you know, they're talented and they're considered up-and-comers and, you know, there's no harm in that. But you're seeing players like a beard, for example, this is not to say Angie beard should have been in this squad, but this is an easy example of a player who's gone overseas and now is not in this squad. Right. And then we're seeing other players who've been able to have really strong starts to the A-League Women season, like Courtney Vine and Holly McNamara, who both deserve to be there, earn their spots. Or, and we've had other players in this team that have been playing A-League women also in the squad. So I'm kind of fascinated to see what happens here because, it feels like the messaging for a lot of players was go overseas to put yourself in contention for Matildas, but then we still kind of defaulted back to players playing in the A-League women or barely playing at all in poor poor Charlie Grant's case um, in, in Sweden and then still being in these squads. So I feel like it's going to be an interesting thing for them to tackle going forward because we heard the frustration from, say, an Ante Juric about his players who'd been really, really strong, Mackenzie Hawksby, for example, not getting a look in, and then you may be seeing other players not playing a whole lot of football and getting a look in. So I, I feel like there's some tension there between national team and maybe club and maybe some of these players who are on the fringe. Not to say there's outright disagreements with everyone, but I feel like it will be good to get some sort of clarification maybe on where this this stuff lies. Sam, I know that you're quite interested in all this. I know a lot of these players, like, McNamara is a great example of someone who was in future Matildas obviously had some injuries young Matildas and junior Matildas framework and has come through and and looked really impressive and I know a lot of these other girls that have been there um, like Remy Simpson and Courtney Nevin and Kara Cooney Cross have also come through the pathways but I feel like there is this sort of lingering feeling of what do certain players need to do to get in to this squad versus others and yeah, it's, it's an interesting one.
3: Yeah, it is an interesting one. And I think another uh, thing that we need to keep in mind when we do talk about that is that, number one, we don't know the rationale that's being used by the coaching staff when it comes to the selection of players. We can only really ask the question. And number two, when players go overseas, it doesn't always work out for them. You know, we've seen players like Jenna McCormick go to Spain... You know, and return pretty quickly afterwards. We've seen Chidiac is a really good example, go over to Spain to Atletico Madrid and come back after it not going well. That's, that's quite common for players to go over like overseas as a vague concept over there sounds great. But when you get there, particularly to some of the leagues outside of the top five, or even in clubs in the lower to like mid to lower half of those leagues, things aren't always as rosy as what they appear. Uh, Dylan Holmes, another good example, right? So just because they go there is not automatic qualification for a Matilda spot. You need to go there, you need to perform, you need to play regularly, you need to play, I think, in addition to that, not just rack up the minutes, but play the kind of football and and put on the kinds of performances that warrant a selection, you know, Tegan Micah is probably a good example of that. And as you mentioned, Claire Wheeler, they've been playing the kind of football that is required for the Matildas at their club level, and they've been playing it regularly and they've been playing it well. So having to like think about all the different dimensions that go into this, I think, is important. And it's still very important and aspirational to encourage players to pursue their best professional opportunities. But sometimes that is in Australia, as we're seeing with Vine and McNamara and, and Nevin and, and maybe Cooney Cross. Sometimes it's elsewhere. It just depends on the player. It depends on the environment. It depends on the coaching. It depends on the football. All that stuff has to be taken into consideration as well. I don't think it's as black as, as black and white as as it's often been made out to be.
1: If, if you're a, a Beard or, I don't know, an India Page Riley or a Beatty Goad, like players who we've seen glimpses of and they may have been put a line through or not right now for various reasons. If you feel like you had to go overseas to get picked, could you not feel a little bit aggrieved that maybe if you're this is a NGP is just a very easy one to come back to, right? Because was in the PFA team of the season, standout left back in the league last year, hasn't come back to the A-League women and therefore not been able to press her case. And her replacement at Melbourne Victory who is Courtney Nevin, obviously, who the Matildas clearly rate and see a high ceiling in is able to try and – although I don't think she had great A-League women form – is able to try and push her case and be fresh in the mind. It it seems like a really difficult thing for maybe some of these fringe players to have to do because, as you say, Sam, you can't just go overseas and be like, well, sweet, I'm overseas, here come my caps. But it feels like a difficult position for some of these players because obviously some aren't going to be in a position to get an FAWSL contract or – um, a, be a really a really good club in, say, Scandinavia. Um, quick shout-out to Katrina Gorry, actually, while we're on it, who will be uh, heading to Vizja, um at the end of the A-League women's season um, to join Claire Polkinghorne. So that's a nice little touch while we're at it. Um, but it seems like a very difficult position for some of these players to be in and... Yeah, it maybe just ties back into that feeling of frustration here amongst some of the coaches and, and players. But it would be good to see what comes of this, and that's whether that's Tony spends more time in Australia, which I think, as I said before, is something that um, would probably be a good thing, um, or what it means in terms of future squad selections. It's it's something to think about, and uh, I mentioned it with in terms of Barbieri talking about players who are battle hardened because twenty twenty three is not long. It's not far away now. And while we might look at players like a Jess Nash, who was so impressive in the A-League Women last season, has obviously got that cap and um, had a tough time of it against the US, but sort of battled through it. And we may well not see her again. You wonder, do you look at getting more experienced heads in just for this purpose of being backups? Like, it's a, it makes
2: some interesting points, I guess. I, I'm also intrigued by... I don't... I don't know if there's politics around this or, again, I'm not a coach, but players coming into big tournaments like a Caitlin Ford who haven't been playing very many minutes at club level at very good clubs, how does that value, like, weigh up against someone who's been playing quite consistently in the A-League women, which is obviously a league at a different standard and a different level of professionalisation and a whole bunch of other stuff. But it's interesting. It can can sort of go both ways because when they announced Lydia Williams in the goals for um, the game against Korea, I was a bit like, but she had a fantastic game and I don't think that game is like she hasn't been getting minutes at Arsenal but obviously has been doing the work the rest of the time as well. I don't know and that's not to like I would absolutely love to see Caitlin Ford in form but I don't, and I don't know if it's maybe just what's going on on the pitch and the rest of the time she's looking fantastic but it is an interesting thing to think about like would there ever be a time where you yeet someone that's always just been there for someone who might be ticking all the boxes elsewhere but isn't hasn't been in the Matildas for you know a decade Similarly, like also like decision making around we've talked about it so much Alana Kennedy like um those kinds of choices as well how do they is there is there any sort of stick in this stick equation relating to that stuff or is it just you come into camp and if you're at the level, you're at the level and great, you're in the squad. I don't know. Um, again, the defence, but of course the defensive side of things, we've talked about also like Alana Kennedy is probably pretty safe in terms of um, our defensive stock regardless of whether she's playing in the midfield or not at club level. But, yeah, it's an interesting – that was, I think, a big thing overall this tournament in terms of um, – Yeah, where players were coming in from. Emily van Egmond, another example. You could probably be like, oh, she's been playing minutes, but it's at Newcastle Jets, but she had a decent tournament. So it's, I don't, yeah, it's a bit, there's no formula, but I do wonder sometimes it doesn't, the maths don't add up for me personally. I think there's something really interesting in that because of
0: the way the tournament's played out. Defense has not been the main thing we've spoken about, which is a refreshing change of pace. Not sure if I love this conversation any better, because it is obviously difficult and, you know, it it it's necessary, but that doesn't make it easy or fun to do. Um, but yeah, just wanted to know it was very interesting that, you know, usually we're we're at the center backs, what are we doing in defense? But we haven't needed to necessarily have that discussion because of the way the tournament's played out. One thing I wanted to note because little alarm bells kind of like it. it's like I saw the words come out of your mouth and like pop up on the screen in neon lights. Angela just then was the players that have always been here. That's I think a really interesting topic of conversation that this tournament has really forced us to think about and assess. We know it's a core group of players and f- as long as I can remember, that's always been a positive thing. That's always been these players know each other. They know what to do. The fact that they are so together and have been so together for so long is a positive thing. Now it feels like maybe, you know, that's been burbling away a little bit, but particularly after this game, that's no longer being looked at as a positive thing. It's being looked at very much as a an Achilles heel or a detriment to the kind of wider Matilda's project. So I'd love some thoughts on that because I think that's a really interesting kind of discussion point.
1: Well I mean the for me, the best things to come out of this Asian Cup where we saw that Claire Wheeler can do the job as a six in games that matter. We saw um I I thought we saw so much from Holly McNamara and Courtney Vine, maybe not the, the finished product, but that they can do something here and the fact that it is players like, I remember talking a while ago about first goals and we haven't I'm trying to think which players scored their first goal a while back oh, I'm blanking on it anyway but we, we we've, we've talked about that sort of thing like what freshness can inspire what it can bring and yeah it's Australia's been very lucky to have a lot of really good players who play at a high level, who've played a lot of football together. But as you say, Marissa, it can be an Achilles heel because people know what to expect. Um, I mean, you look at the team that went out against the Philippines and, yeah, in the second half they managed to break them down and wear them down and score. But, like, if you're going, what team might the Matildas put out in this game? You could have telegraphed it, right? And um, you, you, know, you kind of know what to expect. And the, the other level of it is on a really basic, and this is getting almost a bit club footballish like local level football is when you talk about competition for places and when you talk about players being on edge. And we know also that um, the Matildas have a, a central contract structure as well where, you know, certain players are centrally contracted for the entire year. So you figure are generally going to feature prominently in squads. But is it necessarily a good thing if you're going to see the, I guess, the same players not necessarily like that I think you're always at your best when you've got players on edge not like fit not in the sense of you come in for one squad or one camp and then you get punted that's that's not what I mean by like player selection sort of being on the edge it's that you don't feel like that your position is is guaranteed that you feel like you're gonna have to earn it that you're competing that you're gonna have to go you know go on better than the the player next to you and that was something that really excited me about Claire Wheeler coming in and doing so well at the six is it made, it actually makes you make the conscious decision to go, no, this is a player that can fill this role and it's not a square peg in a round hole. They fit perfectly. And to be fair, you, you shackled a bit when she has to come off injured against South Korea. Um, I, I wonder why I'm sure there's a reason why they didn't say opt for an Ivy Lewick at six then to keep Van Egmond higher up um, rather than having to shift her back. Because once that happened, um, lost control of the game, Van Egmond didn't have much of an impact and it was a real struggle. But to go back, having Van Egmond, sorry, having Wheeler in that position straight away says, no, this is a better option than having Emily Van Egmond at six, which automatically says we can have her higher up the field, pulling the strings, doing what she's best at. And Yes, I know there were some limitations in that Tamiki Allop had, had a poorly timed bout of COVID, the poor thing, and Katrina Gorey didn't travel. Chloe Lagarde was injured, which limited our midfield stocks. Taylor Ray, I think, would have been a real chance to get on the plane as well um, had she not copped COVID. But it's, it's a good thing to have competition, and it was refreshing when you saw... Um, early on court in that second game Courtney Vine come on straight away do it she's done so well in the A league women same with Holly McNamara. and they came on they did it and they make you think and it makes you a better team right like it's it's a pretty basic thing that you can see at any club level and any national team competition for spots is a good thing players earning their spots and it's not on it's not on reputation or what they've done in the past or who they play well with it's about and it comes back to can you fit all your best players into one eleven and have the best team? Most of the time you can't. Is that what's going to have to happen here? You know, in terms of round pegs in round holes, not having square pegs in round holes, having the best lineup rather than a squad. And yeah, for me, as I said, the most positive thing to come out of this was seeing players like Wheeler and Vine and McNamara make you think, yeah, these players can do this job at this level. But the thing now is, do we? What do we learn from that? Do we go and try more players who can help us do that and provide more competition for some of these players? Because it's not going to get better if you, if you keep the same mix. And that's, I mean, that's become clear by this exit. can
2: When you were talking about contracts, I'm like, I can't believe Anna is advocating for more precarity in the workplace. More precarious work. Make them all, really? make them all learn it a month at a time. Like, yeah. <laughs> casual contracts now. No, um, Um. I was going to say, Oh yeah, yeah. Like also the golden generation trope that we've sort of attached to this group of players. I think that has led to some understandable conclusions that this is the group that's going to win us the world cup or yada yada, but we're underselling ourselves if we do that because First of all, it puts so much pressure on that group of players, and sometimes they're just they're not going to perform, and that happens to a lot of great players. Like if we look at someone like Katrina Gory, she's just now coming back into this fantastic form that we know she can produce. But there were a few years there where it wasn't happening. for You know, like that just happens sometimes. Um, but also, like yeah, it it sort of it it's a bit not defeatist but like conclusive to be like this is the generation this these are the ones these are the chosen children or whatever um especially with sam kerr like i think we don't we really don't want to think about life after sam kerr not playing for the tillies which i'm sorry to say this to myself but that will one day be a thing but like it's okay there's going to be Better things, well, not better things. She's pretty bloody good. But there's going to be good things further down the track. Like, I don't know. So, Sam?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think this is what we have learned. We've learned a lot from the Asian car. But what we've learned is the golden generation that we have been putting on this pedestal is actually a lot larger and contains a lot more players than maybe what we thought and we didn't we haven't really had an opportunity to actually really see that until the past year really until Tony has come in and been like all right one of my mandates is to plan for the future and that has almost in a way forced him to cast a huge net and to try and figure out who's out there and you never really got the feeling that that was the case up until he came in I mean, Ante wasn't in the job long enough to really think about long-term planning, and Stad certainly didn't do anything to the same extent as bringing in 50 or so players into an ID camp over the course of 12 months and handing out 12 to 13 debuts over the course of his first year. You know, like that's what is encouraging to me, and the fact that a number of the players who have been brought in even towards the back end of last year, even after Tokyo, players like Wheeler, players like Vine, they're showing that they can stand up and that they can acclimatize quickly and that they can fit into this team and this culture and this system and whatever it is that they want to do, that they can do it if they if they try and if they're given the opportunity. And I think that sends a really good message to a lot of other players out there that if you are performing, I know we spoke about going overseas, but But ultimately, the players who have been brought in to here are a combination of top performers or experienced heads. And, Harrah, I wanted to mention something you mentioned earlier, the word tension in the squad. I feel like I'm going a little bit batty. But when we first started talking about the Asian Cup, I don't feel like we were talking about it as a tournament that we were expecting to win or that we were planning to win or that we were building to win. It felt to me like the Asian Cup was the next step on a journey towards next year. And yet all of a sudden the conversation completely changed and we were like, oh, so we are going out to win it then. Oh, okay. And then I feel like that tension was really evident in the players who were chosen. There was this sort of, this this almost hangover of the original plan, which was to bring in a bunch of youngsters and, and acclimatise them to you know, to what we would expect to be lower ranked Asian opponents for a couple of games, have them experience tournament football and prepare them for what is actually going to be the most meaningful, which is the World Cup next year. But then all of a sudden there was just this 180, and we were all talking about, oh, so they're going to win. Okay, well, I have to have the best team then, surely. And so you've got players like a Ford who's been brought in, you've got players who have not been necessarily getting minutes or performing at Clubland brought in because they know how to win or have been at this level of winning in an Asian Cup before. And so maybe that's where the sort of the tension of all of this lies is that there are almost there was there were two competing expectations of what we wanted to do in this tournament. And that sort of has rippled out across a lot of different areas.
1: I agree with that, Sam. And it'd be good for if the FA are, and I imagine they're going to go through this with a fine tooth go and really dig down into it to give that clarification. Because the message, as you said, when we were talking about this a while ago, you go, you look at these tournaments, the Olympics, you go for it. The Asian Cup already qualified for the World Cup. Why don't we test out some players? And then it feels like, I don't know if it'd be good for the FA to clarify this. If because Tony picked a lot of games against difficult opposition, had a poor win loss record he very much said the, man, the, I don't say the mandate, but very much that from the FA was want to win the Asian Cup. So all of a sudden you have to pick this squad or you have to or you believe the only way you can win this tournament is by playing a very, very experienced team. So you kind of, as you say, Sam, go for the bit of the best of both worlds and don't really, or certainly not even don't really, don't land either. We haven't seen enough new players tested on one hand if you wanted it to be a development and squad experimentation tournament, and they've certainly not won it, so it's not, so it's not ticked a pass mark. In it's not been a pass mark in either of those areas. So it's like, what was this tournament meant to be, and how did it end up the way it was? And I think that's something that the the FA is going to have to answer as well, because if it if Tony and Co initially planned for it to be a tournament where we saw more of what we saw in that second game, where say Remy Seamson starts and we see a, a lot of you. Courtney Nevins, Courtney Vines, Holly McNamara's, Kyra Cooney-Cross, young players that are going to be fighting out to get to 2023. 20, why didn't we see more of those players we were mentioning earlier in terms of your beards, even your – I know she didn't play much, but your Alex Chidiaks, your, your players that are going to be hypothetically contending for these, why aren't they in it? Why is it Emily Gilnick, who could play about 15 minutes in one game and not much more in a second because of injuries, like why have you taken her if she can't? make a tangible impact and if you're taking her because you feel like she can make an impact tony talks about game changers. so it's about winning the tournament no a query of having an unfit player there is going to do do much in that sense and that's not any offense to emily Gilnick, who i think is a fantastic game changing player when she's fit and firing right so you have to wonder what what was the initial remit and why did that change in how did it we saw how it changed and at the end of the day we've not seen either of the things we really wanted to see we got a glimpse of some players getting a go at tournament football which we really enjoyed seeing in that philippines game in particular but when push came to shove in the south korea game courtney vine's really the only one that got trusted and, and obviously claire wheeler started and got injured but you know what i mean it's it's a lot of the the same players that we're seeing the same faces and at the end of the day they've come up short and we are here. Uh, chatting about it for well over an hour so yeah there's there's a lot of questions to be answered and that's not just for Tony and you could see the players with you you look at their social media they're they're clearly frustrated and devastated and feel like they um deserve to deserve to or should have gone further and it feels like a missed opportunity whichever way you wanted this tournament to be played we didn't really achieve either Oh, can we just briefly mention what was going on with the refereeing? Because it was no fun. I know like we it's not an excuse, but, geez, Steph Catley should have had a penalty. The Caitlin Ford one, it's contentious, but if you have to look at it for six minutes to decide that you made a clear and obvious error, you didn't make a clear and obvious error. It was bad. I just wanted to mention that briefly. It doesn't excuse the loss because if you're good enough, you find a way regardless to win it wasn't good. I, I didn't understand why there was the six minute VAR for that one and then the Steph-Catley non call where she definitely gets impeded and there's also one on Sam Kerr in the first half as well where she gets impeded and neither of them even went to a VAR check. You just you just want consistency and personally I don't want VAR. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just thought it was worth mentioning because there was a lot of frustration. It's clearly not the reason we lost that game. or the Matilda. It's clearly not the reason the Matildas lost that game. But it wasn't great. I
0: think my thought process, sorry to backtrack slightly, but with what this tournament was meant to be, because the results weren't there in 2021, even if Tony and the FA came out with a strong message of we're there to test the kids, people still would have said, well, why don't you want to win this tournament? Why? Why is this what you're using a major tournament for? How are we meant to trust that you can win a World Cup if you can't show us results now? So I think that would have caused concern, raised issues. Obviously, we've gone for the the other route or at least that's what it looks like That we've got a win that will show things that will prove to everyone that you know the performance mode preparation mode dichotomy actually works that you know has taken a real its credibility is kind of shot to uh, to hell after this tournament and stuff but it goes back to i think that not not to defend tony too much but that tightrope that he is on between needing to perform now and also being expected to kind of conjure up this magic team that's going to do things in 2023 is really interesting and whether that's a failure of messaging from him and the federation whether that is as simple as we aren't good enough to actually be winning anything whether it's a failure of you know we need more players because the players we have right now Aren't good enough, or they are good enough, but everyone thinks they're about to retire, even though most of them are in their late twenties and are still a few years off retiring. And we've created this kind of, um, not false sense of urgency, but it's a real, you know, the TikTok. We got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And maybe we, you know, we can still build it up, but it's not super urgent. I don't, I don't know. I just feel like like I said, I don't want to defend Tony too much because I do think he hasn't got things right and deserves to be questioned. And it was obviously a really big discussion about whether or not he should be sacked. So I do think we should just touch on that one briefly, but just, I I picture him on a tightrope being pulled in all these directions and all these expectations are placed on him. And no matter what he does, something's not going to work. Something's not going to be right, someone's not going to be happy. And I would absolutely crack under that pressure, which is, you know, a good thing I'm not a coach, but I can't imagine him trying to, you know, juggle all of these competing expectations and interests and all of that kind of stuff at the same time in such a short amount of time as well is a fun, easy thing to
3: navigate. The sacking discourse is... Interesting to me. It comes, I think, from a different, a couple of different directions. I think one of them is that we've become so used to seeing a high turnover of coaches in club land in particular, when they don't deliver immediate results. And it's it's largely in the men's game. And I think that's where a lot of this commentary is being triangulated from. That if you're not producing results quickly, again, Marissa, this sense of urgency then we need to bring in someone quickly who can. And so now it's the point where it's like, well, we're 18 months away. We're 18 months away. And when we're like, we, we're not even getting to the final of an Asian cup. Well, we got to do something now because it's 18 months away, you know? And I think it it, it discounts a lot of the things that he's trying to do. Again, Marissa, the, 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 all these tensions, all of these competing interests and desires that he's being asked to fulfill sometimes paradoxically sometimes those things just cannot go together and it's hard to know how how to act and what to do and t- choices to make because there are so many stakeholders in the game who see things from so many different perspectives that no one you're never going to make everyone happy and and that's maybe what has been quite eye-opening for him coming into this because when you took the job initially sure you can do your research about the Matildas and you know how great the narrative is and what the potential is and the world cup and isn't that great but it's not until you're in this and we've been in this for a while that you see it you know you see it for what it is you see how difficult it is to navigate these discourses to navigate these attitudes and these questions and I I feel for him it must be really difficult having to come to this, your first head coach job at a national team level, off the back of a setup that has been the most successful in the history of women's international football. And then to be given this, <laughs> here, fix it. You know, like that's not fair on him. It's going back to what Angela said at the very top of this pod it's t- it takes a village. And it seems like at the moment the discourse is not recognising that and that it is wanting an easy answer and that it is wanting an easy blame. And my fear is that Football Australia will capitulate to that because this is very much about public image as well. It's not just about results. It's about how things look to certain people, certain stakeholders, certain sponsors And I I worry that Football Australia will crumble under that and that that we'll we'll get a repeat of 2019 where there's panic and someone new is brought in who is also expected to perform miracles and to fix all these problems that Tony is trying to fix, but that takes much, much, much longer than I think all of us realise.
1: Yeah, as as we sort of alluded to at the start, Sam, if that is the route they do decide to go down, they're going to have to make that call very soon because you can't be leaving it to six months out from a major tournament again. They'll, yeah, maybe if there's one thing you learn from that, it's truly got to be that. I don't know which decision they'll make either way. And, um, I mean, you uh, you can never feel sorry for a coach for taking the job because they choose to take on the job. And Tony basically said as much in his in his press conference, didn't he, that he yeah. he took full responsibility for this Absolutely. loss and this exit and understood the the heat, I guess, that was gonna come. Um and if, if um I guess unfortunately for him if things do fall that way, because I, I think he's a, a, a lovely guy, but he wouldn't be the first nice guy to <laughs> to lose lose their job. It's in football, which is a ruthless industry. They they are going to have to, I guess, make a decision one way or the other. But as you say, Sam, it's it's a difficult one. And then the question is, who do you who do you turn to? Because you can't make a call like that without having someone in place. Like I think the obvious call that people have looked at is Joe Montemuro, because obviously Australian, record at Arsenal now, obviously Juventus, um, long history in the women's game here, and obviously his success. So obviously the question mark is he has not coached international level. That's that's the one I think that a lot of people are looking at as an. Ex- as an example, and then you go, well, would you be able to lure an Emma Hayes or whatever? I, I don't know what you'd be able to do, but those are the sort of, I guess, conversations. Can you find someone who can do the job? And as you say, Sam, it'd be a, a lot of pressure if they do stay the course. And that's not an uncommon thing either, because, you know, sometimes you back someone in, you back their, you back their vision and you think you can see what you're going to get in the long term. Then I think we've touched on a few of the things that maybe need to be improved, whether it's if he's based in Australia, um, what his role is versus his assistants, how they look at the players they bring in, what tweaks they need to make tactically, what else they can do to get the best out of this team. I think regardless of what happens, what decision they make, and if he does stay on. And that wouldn't surprise me either, Sam. I would, wouldn't be surprised at all if FA go, we're backing in our man to take us to the World Cup. Then I think we're clearly going to have to see a, a few things change as well because the result wasn't acceptable and I guess the, the win-loss <laughs> ratio hasn't exactly fallen in this favour. And we know the context of playing very good teams and especially early on playing very good teams with not such a strong Matildas team. There's all that context, and we've talked about it over and over. But clearly there's going to be some things. And I don't think there's going to be any, a net positive per se because, you know, this Asian Cup actually is a debacle. But if they can pull the positive threads from it, and we talked about some of those young players and the good things that they have learnt from this first year and build on that and try and create something, then, you know, maybe they can get themselves in a really good position to actually attack this World Cup, and then the proof will be in the pudding. But it's just, yeah, it's an important time and some people are going to have to make some big decisions and uh, it's a good time to not be one of those people to have to make them, I reckon. Yeah, Um,
3: totally. I I think another sort of important theme that you've highlighted there, Harrow, is something that Tony often talks about, which is like controlling what you can control. They can look at everything that they've done over the course of the Asian Cup. They can learn from it. They can choose different players in different camps moving forward. They can give them more support. They can give them more resources. And we're already seeing, we saw even over the course of the Asian Cup, they've got an extra assistant coach now. <laughs> you know, they have another analyst. They This team, uh, you know, gradually they're being given the, the tools that they need or that those above feel that they need to succeed. And I think it's interesting the way that Tony has gone about talking about himself and the changes that he needs to make. He, as you mentioned, Harrah, after this quarterfinal exit, he put it on himself and there is absolutely merit in criticising some of his decisions, his substitutions, his tactics, X, Y, Z. But I think it's a good sign that he learns and wants to learn and wants to improve and wants to get better as well. Because so often you come across a head coach who's like, well, no, I'm, I'm right. And it's the players who are not executing my plan or I'm not being given the resources that I need X, Y, Z, but he seems to be quite self-aware and he seems to be part of this whole thing with the players, with the Federation, you know, with, with everyone. Um, And that's, and that comforts me because At the end of the day, if they're going to do everything that they can, if they're going to work as hard as they can and try as hard as they can, and yet they still fall short of whatever expectation it is, I'm personally, I'm all right with that. Like, yeah, maybe alternate realities and this could have done that and whatever, But if they're all trying hard and they're doing as much as they can and they're controlling what they can and they still can't get to where we think they should be, I don't know if that's a reflection of them or of us.
1: I think at the end of the day a lot of it's going to come down to the players' response and reaction to this um, and everyone else that's around the team because it's classic in football, right? If you lose the dressing room, then you're not going to last. But if those players – believe in that vision and they feel like they're making progress and they can see, maybe the light, light at the end of the tunnels may be a bit dramatic, but I'll run with it anyway, but they can see where this is going, then I think that's going to be key to the FA making an informed decision. If the FA are happy with it and if the players want to continue on this journey with Tony and his staff and this is where they see success at the World Cup coming from, then I think that's going to play the biggest Role more than anything you or I or anyone else externally can say. So, yeah, it's um, that's it.
0: Is there anything else that we need to talk about?
3: I mean, there's still like the, there's still an Asian Cup going on. We're still going to see a a nation lift the trophy. You know, and isn't it fabulous to see the Philippines have qualified for the Women's World Cup for the first time? That's great. That is part of the wonder and opportunity of tournaments like this and the expanded format like this as well. And it's not just these final four teams who are going to be competing for in the semifinals and then two of them in the final, but there's also the repercharge. There's going to be a couple of other Asian teams, your Taiwans, uh, your Thailands, who are going to be given another shot to maybe get to next year as well. And isn't that cool? Isn't that exciting? They're going to play an intercontinental playoff against maybe a team from Africa or, you know, CONCACAF or something. You know, that's going to be really fun and a really cool opportunity for them. Um, I'm actually really backing South Korea to get to the final of this one. I think they've been threatening to do this. And I don't just say this because they beat us. I say this because they've been threatening to do a run like this for a while. And I think they have the players and they have if So yun is fit if she hasn't torn her groin which it looked like she possibly did at the end of the game against us i i'm pretty i'm pretty jazzed that they're doing this because women's football in south korea is very underdeveloped but they have this generation who are really able to make something of it and if they come up against japan you know that that would be fabulous as well because it's you know, the narratives are there. The narratives are written. Um, I'd love to see the Philippines go on to the final. I'd love to see China go on to the final. You know, like this is still, it's still a cool tournament. It's still a, cool, a tournament filled with possibilities and with really great storylines and the emergence of new nations. And, you know, it all, it all falls into the one sort of big thing, the big story that is the growth of women's football since it, it sort of was allowed to grow. And that's really fun to be part of.
1: The exciting thing for all those semi-finalists is because of Australia doing what Australia did, they're all through to the World Cup already. So yeah, exactly. I, know that I know that there's a trophy at the end of this and you want to win a trophy, but you wonder if that will maybe release the shackles on a couple of these teams because um, tournament football is cagey. We know that. But they can maybe play with a bit of freedom. and Not that they haven't already, but the weight of qualification is off your back, which is maybe something we should have thought about with Australia going into this um, this tournament in terms of playing with freedom. But, like, obviously we know that Japan are perennial contenders and going for, what, three in a row. Like, China, um, we've seen what they can do against us and how impressive they can be when they hit their straps. We didn't see the best of them at the Olympics. I don't think we, we just got a first-hand look at South Korea, who we knew would be disciplined and doggedly defensive and obviously have that star... Factor with with Jisoyun Sam, and as you mentioned, I really hope she is fit because when she is up and about, she just sparkles. Just a sensational player, and obviously a lot of credit um, needs to go to the Philippines and Alan Stadich and his team who have, you know, put together. You mentioned um, a couple of pods ago, Sam, about that intensive training camp they had in the US, the talent identification, and um, it's nothing like seeing a goalkeeper score a penalty in, in a penalty shootout as well. Um, and they deserve a lot of credit, and that, that you hope will be huge for um, participation in the Philippines, and also um, huge for those of um, Filipino descent in the you know the US or in Australia to really be able to enjoy that. And they all, their coaching staff and the players, as we mentioned, committed to these lengths that um, Stagenco wanted them to go to to get to the next level. They all deserve a lot of credit for doing that, and now they've earned a spot at the World Cup and. You get a charge at silverware, and that's as I said at the start. That's the exciting thing for all of those four teams. They can go for it because it's not on the line so much now. So it's still on the you know there's still something to play for, and it's still all on the line. But you're through to 2023, and it should be a pretty exciting into the tournament, albeit without the Matildas in it. Yeah, I think a lot
0: of people will still obviously be tuning into this because. It, it is there's a trophy there's a tournament going on and it's going to be really interesting um thank you so much for tuning in we know this has probably been a bit of a lengthy one but there's there's so much conversation about this game and what it means and I think we've added to that as well so we do recommend reading obviously what we've written because we need to give plugs to our own work and whatnot but there is a lot of good interesting conversation out there as well and I think that's a really good thing that has come from this so thank you for tuning in remember you can find us on espn.com.au and the espn app we're on spotify apple and google leave a review subscribe we're at the far post pod on all social media so you
2: can have a chat to us over there but until next time see us a far post pod on Reddit. I just joined. I've already gotten in a fight with someone. Come find us. It'll be fun. Come fight with us, apparently. Anyway, say